Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 119 being recorded on Monday, March 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are live. If this sounds different to you, uh, we're live from the bustling show floor here at the Path to Purchase Summit in big, beautiful Schaumburg, Chicago, which uh, is pretty close, I think, to downtown Chicago, right? It is. It is. Uh, thanks, everyone, to coming, uh, for coming to my hometown. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the rare times not only are Jason and I live, but our guest is live as well. Um, this uh, show has uh, three days packed full of mostly CPG content around uh, how, to, how consumers buy things. Jason can tell you the history of the show. He's, he's kind of an uh, expert on this. Um, but what we're doing today is an Amazon day where we're talking about Amazon so we are going to bring to you some of the top speakers from that program, and we're excited to welcome back to the show, Melissa Burdick. Welcome back, Melissa. Thanks, guys. She is one of the keynotes here today. What are you speaking about at today's show? Uh, we are doing Amazon Insider Tips with uh, Danny Silverman from Clavis, and I have a long history with Danny. Actually, I was his buyer at Amazon, launching Johnson & Johnson, and he was leading e-commerce at J&J, so fast forward, I don't know. How many years later? 10, 12 years later, and here we are. You're still on speaking terms. That's pretty <laughs> – usually uh, usually Amazon buyers and the other side aren't really on speaking terms. That's, so that's back uh, when we were nice. Okay, back then. Yeah. Back when you were there. <laughs> uh, very cool. So uh, this is your second time on the show. Um, a lot has changed since the first time you were on the show. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, – what's been going on? So um, – New year, new company. Uh, we have uh, kind of rebranded to a company named PackView and have added significant ad technology expertise to our company, kind of um, changing with the time. So we still do the same thing, strategic consulting and advisory services and advertising marketing strategy for Amazon. But with Amazon opening up some of their APIs, still in beta for, for some, um, but we have access to them. It was really necessary to bring in some significant ad tech expertise to be able to build what we consider the best-in-class ad platform for Amazon. So I have a new partner who's actually the CEO of our company called Jiawei Tang, and he was one of the original um, members of Microsoft Ad Center being ads. And then he went on to find, uh, found a, a company called AdSage, which is the largest SEM in China, and has brought over a lot of those software engineers who really understand ad tech. And um, so with my Amazon expertise, we have really built a great ad platform. Very cool. And so this is a tool that would be used by brands or by agencies? Both. So we, we use it for ourselves. Yep. We also license it for agencies and brands. We have several using it right now. So, yeah, it's great. Predominantly around placing both AMS and AMG style? Well, or the, the, goal, the goal will be ultimately AMG when the APIs are more readily available. Right now, um, there aren't many APIs available within AMG. So ultimately, we want to get all of marketing in one place for brands to make it easy. Right now, it's really building out the automation and programmatic bidding for paid search 
and making it more e-commerceized um, than others. So what I mean by that is we want to do things like when your competitor runs out of stock, being able to bid on their branded keywords and being able to get more of their share. Um, we also want to integrate real-time sales into our platform so that when there's times of greater conversions, we can bid more. And when there's times of less conversions, we can bid less. So we want to integrate kind of e-commerce into our platform, and that's what, that's what we've done. Interesting. And it, so some of the, those uh, triggers that you just mentioned are things unlikely to come from the Amazon APIs. It almost sounds like you would tie the kind of insight that you mentioned, Clavis, earlier that mm-hmm. you'd, you'd get from a service like that with the ability to take action exactly. on it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and we're still crossing our fingers that Amazon will ultimately launch some APIs in those areas, but they haven't yet. Cool. So um, let's let's kind of start high level. What are some of the trends you've seen since last being on the show that, that you want to share with listeners? I think a lot of the trends are, so last year, there and there's a big difference between kind of the traditional big manufacturers and then these niche, smaller brands that are coming online, and I work with all of them. So it's really interesting to um, to work with all these. Everyone has their own different challenges. But I would say for the traditional manufacturers, the biggest difference is last year it was about building the business case to um, think that e-commerce is becoming big and they need to big build big teams. And so I think that that box has been checked and people are now starting to invest, building teams. I probably get a recruiter call each week asking me if I want to be VP of, you know, some brand or if I know of someone that wants to be, you know, leading e-commerce at a brand. So I think that there's really this heightened um, focus on e-commerce this year, whereas last year it was kind of like building the business case to say we want to start really focusing on it. And then this year it's about execution, finding the right partners and um, starting to implement uh, e-commerce and making it you know, kind of blowing it out. So I think that these shows keep getting bigger. People keep learning. They keep hiring more people into this area. So I see this big kind of heightened um, focus on it. Cool. What's um, what's causing that? The uh, kind of the what I call Malageddon, or um, have companies just kind of worked through? When, when brands are trying to figure this out, there's this internal battle between like the sales department and mm-hmm. the offline guys and online who gets credit and all that. And before you kind of want to have a VP, you have to kind of work through that. Is is it just a life cycle? What's, what's causing it to accelerate? I think, I think there's a lot of data points. I think one is you know people are tired of seeing those graphs where e-commerce is growing at such a high rate and you know store sales are declining. Um, I think it's just a lot of these business cases that people put together around. They see their competitors starting to invest, like Procter & Gamble. Um, so they point out some of the other big guys that are starting to do these things. Um, they're starting to see that them losing market share in e-commerce to other niche players because they're not investing in it. So I think that there's just this combination and culmination of all these data points that have finally gotten people's attention. And I think that regardless, everybody agrees that they need an e-commerce strategy, um, whether they're on Amazon or not. They think that they need to have a, a strategy anyway because they're on there, whether they want to be or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, to me it feels like it's it's almost a, a double whammy. Like all these companies are waking up to how important it is to do well on Amazon um, 
and uh, the ecosystem on Amazon is changing so much. Yeah. Uh, that it's it's not even easy to necessarily for someone new to the space to even know what to do or like mm-hmm. following the playbook that worked last year isn't likely to be very relevant this year. Exactly. It's when I when I worked at Amazon and even now the pendulum swings. It's like this year it's this strategy and then the pendulum will go the opposite direction. And if you're not already kind of understanding the ecosystem and what works and the kind of basic principles, it's really hard to keep up Yeah, with that kind of environment. For sure. So when you get a new client that's um, sort of newer to the premise of starting to invest in their presence on Amazon, like, are there some fundamentals you recommend they start with? Like, is there what's the high level advice that you give people to yeah. start thinking about? Absolutely. And that's actually part of our presentation today. There's really some fundamentals that are critical to be able to start with, and it's it's these basic retail e-commerce principles of having the right assortment, which is actually harder than you think it is, especially on Amazon, because they have so many different platforms, Fresh, Prime Now, Pantry, Pantry just changed their business model, core business, and for each of those different platforms, they have different economic models and different assortments that kind of work. And so what happens is offline manufacturers just, they put their offline assortment online and they kind of square, uh, round peg square hole those assortments. And so that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, being in stock is also a bigger challenge than you think. And it's what drives people to create hybrid accounts with third party merchant backup offers. Um, so it's having the right assortment, being in stock, uh, content and SEO and working on a big digital strategy project with a large manufacturer. And it is so much harder than what you can possibly think it would be with all the legal approvals you have to get. Um, You know, it's always this battle between SEO optimizing titles and content and what is actually approved. And it's things that are to us maybe um, seem like it's an easier, not very risky thing to get approved, but to a legal team, it's, it's pretty hard. So um, those are those are really the critical building the fundamentals and having those things in place and then having the technology like a PIM. Um, you know, just integrating all of that stuff is is difficult, and that's where actually everybody's really focusing a lot of time and attention on right now. Yeah, and it, it's interesting if if you were to start a brand new brand today mm-hmm. and you knew your presence on Amazon is super important, there are all these sort of best practices you would build in your culture. So yep. like when you named your SKUs, exactly. you'd be thinking about Amazon-friendly SEO in your SKU names. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these companies were not born yesterday, and that name is probably getting made by in, in an ERP system by some supply chain person whose main concern is how a pallet gets to Walmart. Mm-hmm. And so like bridging that gap from those those sort of names and all that content getting created, you know, way downstream for some other purpose and sort of morphing it into something that works in these digital platforms seems like one of the big uh, expensive challenges at the moment, especially when the brand has a lot of SKUs. Yeah. Actually, one of the examples we have is with uh, Cheez-It, the cracker. Oh, I love Cheez-Its. Yeah. Do you know how to spell it? Uh, I don't. C-H-E-E-Z-I-T? Yes. But the misspelled version ding, of ding, that, ding. the misspelled version of that, actually ranks higher in search uh, than the correct spelling. Yeah. So people misspell it more than they spell it, mm-hmm. and so that's an example of all the misspelled misspellings of a word needs to go into the hidden search keywords and the backend data yeah. of a word of a of a detail page of an item. 
Um, and that's just like a small little thing, but it's, it, you know, it's just these things that are so, um, on a shelf that you don't even think about it. Yeah. The Google group has probably already figured all that out, but they're not going to be talking to the Amazon group. So exactly. the Amazon group's going to have to go figure it all out again, mm-hmm. versus like sharing the common channel kind of things. But when they, when they figure it out a second time, that means they pay a bunch of people in the ecosystem a whole second time to help them. <laughs> True. Yeah. So we're, yeah. we're okay with that. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's funny because when I work with a lot of brands, sometimes they're getting the same information from like three different partners. Same thing. So to your point that that is happening. For sure. What, one of the, um, so one of the naysayer things about a brand selling on Amazon is uh, once you put your brand on Amazon, they're just going to mine your data and they'll come out with a private label that just effectively competes with you. Um, what do you say? So there's a lot of data out there that shows private label is really hot on Amazon. They're creating tons of new SKUs all the time. They're in almost every category. What, what do you say to that, that argument? And then uh, we can kind of peel the onion on private label even further if you want. I think it's true. And one of the things I think, I mean, private label is um, kind of a, ch- a challenge everywhere, but on Amazon, it's it's a hyper challenge because there's so much e-commerce happening there. And then on top of it, Amazon has some unfair treatment of private label in terms of they have special content that the private label brands have access to. They have access to special widgets that other brands don't have access to. And then, like you said, they have access to data. Yeah. Um, but very frequently, the Amazon choice I've noticed too. And they're very, yes, exactly. That too. Um, I had a client where they had a product, um, Amazon came in and basically kind of, it was pretty much a very similar product, same colors um, in the fashion space and half the ASPF, half the price. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of a sudden their demand went, was cut in half basically. And I think it just pushes manufacturers to, keep an eye on their quality and their price and their reviews and their star ratings as much as they can. Um, and then, you know, talk to Amazon about not being so aggressive on their detail pages, which is what they actually talk to them about. Um, because it's hard for a brand to say, we're going to pay Amazon a bunch of co-op and money. We're going to drive traffic to our pages and then they're going to see a cheaper, you know, version of our product on our page. And so that is, a big challenge to brands. And so, um, so should brands just avoid Amazon because of that? Like what's, what's your advice to brands that are, they're not selling on Amazon and they're worried about private label. I think that I, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because of, um, what I do, but I think that brands need to be on Amazon because that's where the traffic and the eyeballs are, but they need to focus on building the reviews and their star rating and having good pricing and having good products that, you know, maybe Amazon copies, but um, if they're better and they can still be there, uh, that's what they have to do. Yeah, and it's way, it's kind of an existential argument, right? So if, if you're a brand and you don't believe your brand adds enough value to stand out against private label, then why are you even a brand? It's kind exactly, of like, you know, yeah. So that's what I can never get my head around in that argument. Um, but I understand their concern. Um, does... Does Amazon just kind of sit there and mind? How does Amazon come up with private label ideas? Is it, you know, I've always thought of it from a, they're so focused on the customer that they're trying to identify these gaps in selection and price points. Mm -hmm. And it ends up colliding with a lot of things. Um, 
I think so. I obviously don't know, but my guess is one of the things, at least especially in the grocery and CBG space, that's so um, constrained with margins and profitability. My guess is that they look at these categories where they have a really tough time making money with the manufacturers and go private label so that they can make the margins that they want to make. So I think that's one of the the big opportunities for them. Um, and they just they definitely have a prioritized list that they're kind of working through based on a bunch of different criteria of demand, um, the the category size, the data that they have collected, and then where the profitability um, lies. Yeah. Being a native Seattleite, I think one time you told me that that was like a really hot group within Amazon. Is that still kind of a hot group to be working for the private label area or um, maybe someone else that told me that? <laughs> you know, I think it, I think that that group has definitely grown. But I think that there's also other hot groups like Alexa, like the shiny oh, new penny yeah. is definitely um, kind of the AI and Alexa and the Amazon Go groups. Mm-hmm. Seems like that that's, you know, there's always kind of this rush. Maybe private label has continued to grow, but these other groups seem to be a little bit more popular. The Amazon alumni group seems a little more popular than it used to be. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, like pretty high-profile defections lately, too. Yeah, 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 it has been. I don't know. Maybe the stock price hit a hit a high and people cashed out and ready to, to move to a new place. I don't know. I was assuming there was some big tranche of uh, options that finally vested or something is, is uh, what I was guessing. Um, but going back to the, the brand conundrum for a minute, it's it's interesting. I want to unpack a couple things. Like yeah. the, uh, I almost desperately try to avoid calling it private label with clients because private label has a particular connotation that brands are aware of and that they're not overly concerned about. Like the the private label model was a retailer is going to make a carbon copy of a branded product and mm-hmm. not market it. So the marketing is you walk to, to the store to buy the branded product and you stumble over the private label copy and some percentage of the audience will uh, opt to pay less for that private label product, right? And mm-hmm. that that was always erosive to some some portion of the brand's um, uh, revenue. But what Amazon is doing, and frankly, what all other big retailers are doing now, is not private label. It is not. Let's make a carbon copy of the national brand and just put it on the product detail page next to the the um, national brand. It's let's create a product that has its own value proposition and in mm-hmm. many cases has competitive advantages versus the national brand. Absolutely. And then let's market the hell out of it and make people want it. Yeah. Um, and so to me, it's it's an owned brand strategy. It's a strategy that where retailers are making brands that are explicitly trying to outbrand the brand. So mm-hmm. hey, I, on that score, I'd say the brand should be more worried than they potentially are. But then the the flip side of this is, it's not just Amazon, it's Walmart, it's Target, uh, it's Costco, um, and it's Amazon, and they're all creating these brands. If you're in a world where the only way you can survive is if no one else competes with you, mm-hmm. then you're just at the end of your life. Like, that model doesn't work anymore. There used to be this explicit deal with brands and retailers. The brands created the product, and they created interest at the top of the funnel, and the retailers found the traffic and created interest at the bottom of the funnel, and they had this happy alliance. Mm-hmm. That alliance is now gone. And so I would say to brands, you need to be everywhere where the traffic is, and the traffic is certainly on Amazon, but you need to have a, stra- a strategy to win in an environment when there are all these great competitors trying to knock you off. Yeah. And they're, so what you're saying, I mean, I totally agree. They're, they're really building their brand, and they're using all their marketing vehicles to do it. 
And so I like to study their private label. So I am a student of, you know, how are they doing their content? What are the marketing vehicles they're doing? How are they, it's a real, how are they boxing their products? The, you know, I did a whole workshop on how Amazon does private label and actually bought all the products and showed people how they're packaging it because it's a perfect way for people to learn and understand the best way to do it. I love their battery packaging. It's like I spent, you know, eight hours stabbing myself trying to open up the, the Duracells and Energizers. They're, they're, you know, just opening up a nice cardboard box and they're just right there is frustration free. Yeah. And batteries is actually, is, does, isn't the private label Amazon's Amazon Basics like seventy percent market share or some, yeah, some according huge... to Ten Ten Data, it's really outselling all the all the branded products. Yeah, I think uh, we had them on the show, and it was also baby wipes, if I remember. Yeah, wipes um, and batteries. Yeah, but you're like they're the the market leader. Amazon Elements batteries are the market mm-hmm. leader, like by over ten percent market share over Duracell, which well, and if you notice too, um, and some of the widgets I was talking about, they attach their Amazon Basics to a lot of these other devices within consumer electronics. It's you know it, an attachment that you can add to it. That's again kind of one of those unfair placements potentially, yeah. but that's you know it, it's yeah. interesting. It's a podcast, so I know our listeners can't see it, but every time uh, Melissa says unfair, two Department of Justice attorneys like pop up right behind her, <laughs> and they're like furiously scribbling notes. It's crazy. I don't know what that is. I'll leave it. Did she say Monopoly? Yeah. I, I, I have no idea what's going on there, but that sounds interesting. That We should have a show on that. Um, so one thing I have noticed, uh, a lot of these brands that historically have been holdouts and maybe even public, kind of public about their lack of presence on Amazon, it feels like... Like there's been news over the last year that a lot of them are starting to have a presence, and mm-hmm. like one that comes to mind for me is Nike. Any like, is this just inevitable that we're going to start seeing all these guys on there? Anything interesting about the strategies you're seeing from those kinds of brands? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it goes back to the same. Um, everybody, whether they're on Amazon or not, they need to have an Amazon strategy. I think Nike. You know, they got a lot of news and attention, and then other people are, who are not on Amazon yet are kind of seeing them as the, the first one. I think other ones will fall soon thereafter. But it's, you know, the Nike thing was really about them controlling their brand on Amazon and having a, a partnership because they were tired of having such a lack of control. Um, and so I think that we'll see more and more of that happening where they come in and, and try to control their brand more um, and then I think what, what Nike's doing is really interesting, too, outside of Amazon, where they're using more experiences with Instagram and, and other mediums to bring more of the experiential part. Uh, Snap, I think, was Snap. the big launch. Uh, they launched a new shoe with a cool uh, Snap experience. Like they had the whole Super Bowl with Justin Timberlake, right? That was Nike, where then you could buy that product. So I think, I think amp- people want to use Amazon for scale. You know, and and maybe come some of the, some of the basics, but then having some experiences like that um, to really drive the brand too. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of Nike selling on Amazon to really just control the third party marketplace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at some point, Amazon's got to look at the numbers and see if what they lost from third party is not as big as what Nike's selling. I don't imagine. Oh, it, I, I guarantee Amazon you, it would be that. way more if they didn't have that relationship. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you're, you're a bit of an advertising guru on Amazon. Um, what are some of the trends there? We've, we've uh, maybe give folks that, that are new to it a high-level overview of, of the offerings um, mm-hmm. and then what you're seeing people take advantage of. Okay. Yeah, so Amazon has basically a paid search offering, which is keyword-based, cost per click. You can bid on keywords similar to Google AdWords. 
And then they have a CPM um, display advertising network across Kindle, mobile, desktop, and Amazon advertising platform. Um, so those are the two. Amazon advertising platforms for like off Amazon. So if someone goes to Amazon and looks for something, the ad will follow them, kind of retargeting within starting at the Amazon ecosystem. Yes. Yep. And just to be a little bit more complicated, actually, you can leverage it's AAP, Amazon advertising platform. You're basically leveraging Amazon's audience um, and targeting, and you can actually target them off Amazon or on Amazon too. And the on Amazon is maybe lesser inventory, but you, it's a cheaper way to get onto desktop. Got it. Uh, and then, uh, so then one thing that's always been confusing is what's available to first party and what's available to third party. Any news on that? Yeah. So, you know, traditionally 1P and 3P have had very different offerings, um, but they're really starting to come together uh, much more and have much more parity. So there's still a slight lack of parity within paid search. There's one one um, ad type within paid search that they don't have access to, which is the product display ad, which is right underneath the buy box on a detail page. Yeah. So they still don't have access to that, but they recently opened up headline search ads to third parties. Nice. That's um, that long vertical strip that kind of takes right, over the, the top. Bar. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's nice. And then display advertising has always been available to third parties. It's just uh, a little bit more expensive, and maybe they, they haven't wanted to, to spend money in it. But it's definitely a bigger focus within Amazon now is reaching third parties with AMG. Yeah. You told me there's a new acronym floating around. Uh, what's that new one? Oh, for paid search? Yeah. It's so... Paid search is called AMS for 1P, Amazon Marketing Services, and then it's been called Sponsored Products for 3P, but now there's actually Sponsored Products and Headline Search Ads, so it's super confusing. So now um, they're referencing it as SSPA, which is Self-Service Performance Advertising. Okay. So SSPA is the new name for AMS or just like for Sponsored Products? It's the new name for search. For search. search. Okay. Yeah. And then within there you have the banner thingy and the thing under the box and the... Sponsored listings, sponsored, sponsored products. products, and product display okay. ads, right. all of it, and it's uh, uh, agnostic to one P three P. The term SSPA is agnostic yeah. to that. Yep, they like to call it search and display, just to be super simple. Got it. Cool. And the SS implies more self service, so I guess mm-hmm. um, a lot of brands, um, you know, they're more using agencies. Do you think that? That that's negative for agencies because now the brands can kind of go do this self-service or could they always just do it self-service and you think they'll need help? Um, that's a good question. I So Amazon in general as a platform is more and more self-service. Um, they want paid search and they really launched paid search to be a completely self-service uh, capability. And they... I think Amazon's pretty agnostic as to whether an agency runs it or whether uh, a brand runs it, although they've always had this feeling like they want to cut out third parties because they, that money that they're paying a third party, they they don't they feel like that's wasted money. Your margin is my opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you cut out that third party and a brand could just run it themselves and they can ha- spend more money in paid search, that's, that's probably in Amazon's mind better. But the reality is at brands is that you need that person with the expertise to be able to run it. Yeah. So if you lack the expertise, you should outsource it. Yeah. And this is interesting. So Google kind of famously was anti-brand for a very long time, anti-agency for a long time. And then they kind of swung around and realized they had to embrace it. Do you think Amazon will go through that or it's just like not part of their culture to embrace a partnering kind of a model? I think Amazon wants to embrace partnering, but they don't know how. 
They're to me, they're kind of in between Google and Apple, and where Google's super open and Apple's super closed, and then Amazon somewhere in the middle. Where they're they 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 are really trying to figure out agency partnerships. They actually have a whole team dedicated to this uh, <laughs> outreach, <laughs> and they're what they're trying to build is um, automation and scalability with agency partnerships. So they want to create a portal where they can you can come and get all the content information you need and never talk to a human potentially. Um, well, the more they can do that, the more they can scale. Yeah. But that's I think that's kind of the vision, but it hasn't hasn't happened quite yet. It seems like they want to accomplish that in every aspect of their business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, automation <laughs> is the way to scale. Yep, yep. Uh, changing topics just slightly. Um, there's. Uh, been a lot of brick and mortar news lately and mostly negative. Um, uh, potentially super tragically for me, it looks like Toys R Us might not even emerge from their, their, uh, their bankruptcy. I have a, a two and a half year old and I, I'll be crushed if I don't, if he never learns the song. Um, Do you go to Toys R Us with him? So I haven't yet. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to. My wife is slightly less eager. But I, I feel like that was the first song I learned as a kid. So it seems like uh, usually I'm not super nostalgic about all this retail stuff. But yeah. uh, but that'll, that'll leave a huge hole in the toy industry. It'll be interesting. Um, but I'm somewhat curious, like, as, as someone that, like, predominantly plays on the digital side and, and obviously, like, you know, so much experience in Amazon, what your POV is on the – on the retail side, is this just inevitable as as consumer behavior shifts to digital, or what? Do, what do you? How do you think about retail Armageddon? I think I think the interesting about Toys R Us, and then the one that I was really sad about was Claire's, yeah. um, where I got my ears pierced, and my daughter got my. I told my daughter, who's eight, that Claire's is uh, probably declaring bankruptcy, and her first question to me was, "Where are all the girls going to get their ears pierced?" She was very concerned about this. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the articles I read about Toys R Us that uh, I think one of the executives said was that kids are changing. They're not playing with toys anymore. Um, and maybe it's true that there's so much more digital content consumed with unboxing videos on YouTube. But I feel like these retailers need to bring more of that experience to their stores to drive more of the traffic there. Yeah. And that it's just about the same products. You know, it's a price war. It's the same but product. At the same time, you see these new brands just really taking off, like Melissa and Doug, which kind of implies there's demand for toys. They're just not, not being found. <laughs> Toy, you know, Toys R Us is somehow missing them. You know, they went through more like the boutique toy stores because Toys R Us was like, no one wants your toys. And then they proved there was a market for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I know Melissa and Doug thought of Amazon as a big strategy for them, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, I think if you're just selling toys and there's nothing else, you know, that store trip is less convenient. Um, and you need to provide a reason for people to keep coming back to the store. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that they missed the event kind of opportunity. You know, so why can't you have birthday parties at Toys R Us and mm-hmm. all kinds of different things? Just kind of like, you know, they missed the experiential side of it. Interestingly, and I, uh, it remains to be seen how well it plays out, but like one of the retailers who's talking about like beefing up their toys to try to fill in that gap, as you mentioned, events is Party City. Yeah. Um, so that that would potentially be a new audience for them. I'm not sure it's like completely uh, synergistic, but but uh, funny that you had mentioned events. Cool. So back over to Amazon. Uh, what are some of the other things you see them experimenting with these days that that are interesting that folks should learn about? Um, one of the things I think is interesting, and on the last show, I think you guys asked me a question like, what should Amazon get into? And I said, I think they should offer healthcare to Prime customers. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember that. Right? I do. Yes. Um, Very prescient on your part. 
And then um, <laughs> now they launch this whole healthcare initiative. They also have this ability to create, um, they have private label drugs, I think, too, like medical. Yeah. Over the counter drugs. Over the counter yeah. drugs, yeah. yeah. And they've registered as a pharmacy in like 20 something states. Yeah. Pharmaceutical so, equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And equipment. Yep. I think that with all their experimentation with AI, like they have such an opportunity. The healthcare industry ha- is so not transparent. You know, when you go into a surgery, you have no idea how much you're spending. So I think that Amazon has such such a big opportunity in this industry to really disrupt it and make it better for consumers. So I'm really excited about what they're doing there. I think the Amazon Go technology is really cool. Have you guys been to the Go store? I know you have, right? I haven't been to it since it's legal. Okay. <laughs> it, it feels like it takes some of the fun out of it when there's like no danger of you being arrested. Yeah, I think that I think that Go technology is really cool. Actually, and I they um, they're opening a new Amazon building in South Lake Union, and I think a PCC is going in there, um, which is kind of interesting that another Go is not going in to you know another Whole Foods or something like that is not going to one of their buildings. And but, so for those that are not uh, Seattleites, oh, PCC is a local co-op. Grocer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, much beloved in Seattle. Yes. Maybe they'll adopt, maybe they'll license the Go technology. Uh, potentially, yeah. That, <laughs> uh, so uh, that brings up a great question. There's somewhat of a hot debate amongst Go followers whether Go is a, another technology platform that Amazon does license to third parties, a la Amazon Web Services or shipping with Amazon or all those sorts of things, or whether. Um, it is potentially something that Amazon would keep proprietary. Do you have a, a like, w- would you expect to see them license Go? I, th- I think so. I think that they would license it because I think that people are going to build their own technology um, anyway. So, you know, then they can control people. They can get the data potentially. Yeah. And it, it seems like it follows the pattern of so many of the other technologies mm-hmm. that they've done. And to your point, there, there's, I can find 10 companies that have, similar technology that may be further or less along, but it's it's not unique to Amazon. And so, like, why wouldn't you? It's not like no retailer will be able to do it if you don't license it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a huge moat. Um, but there is, uh, there, there is an interesting um, school of thought that most of the things that Amazon license have this sort of acceleration effect for other parts of their business that's less likely, that, that's less obvious Go does. So it's just, it, it was going to be interesting. Uh, it, sh- it will be interesting to watch how that plays out. Um, but the big question, the most important question everyone seems to ask about Amazon, which I'm being entirely sarcastic because I think it's way overplayed, uh, HQ2. Any thoughts about mm-hmm. where where the, the first non-Seattle headquarters is? And as a Seattlean, are you even allowed to talk about that or is it too depressing to talk about? I think it would be really great for Seattle because the traffic is insane and out of control. So I think most people want a separate headquarters to, like, lessen the traffic burden. But my wishful thinking, I don't know um, where, but my wishful thinking would be Austin because I'm a Texan and I would move there back there in a heartbeat if it were Austin. Whole Foods is there. Um, Jeff Bezos is from Texas, from Houston. Although I heard he bought a big, huge house near Washington, D.C., so... Um, I think Austin's in the running. I'm, I'm rooting for them. What about you? Where do you think it's going to be? Uh, so I think D.C., I, I think there's a, there are all these cognitive biases that we all have. And one of them is we all think wherever we're from or wherever we live is the best place in the world to live. Mm-hmm. So the Austin thing is totally fair and, <laughs> uh, and I think would be a good fit in a variety of ways. Uh, but like uh, uh, Scott Galloway, who uh, mm-hmm. likes to talk about it a lot, like he keeps predicting New York. And I joke that like only people that live in New York think New York is the 
best place in the world to live. Um, I just think all the all the other factors, uh, the their need to be closer to for lobbying and the the very big risk that some of these that some some version of Amazon, Google, Apple likely get some antitrust uh, challenges and like need really strong government relations in the next uh, uh, few years. I just think you add all that together and it's like uh, Washington's most likely. And if for no other reason, there's three cities in the mix there. So I triple my chances of being right. (laughs) I saw an interesting Wall Street uh, report this morning from an analyst and they had a firm that has a machine learning AI kind of thing and they sucked in all this data and it spit out Boston. And when they kind of dug into why, it was looking at all the Amazon job openings. And they have so many machine learning AI job openings, which is kind of like, I don't know if the AI skewed it this way, which makes me like freak out a little bit. But anyway. Uh, AI it, has AI biases? Yeah. <laughs> and then what it had done is it had looked at kind of the, you know, the it had some demographic that, you know, evidently Boston is very high, um, most likely I would imagine because of MIT um, in AI talent and machine learning talent. So that, that was kind of an interesting no, uh, unbiased view of it. I thought it was was so. Is that pretty your wild. pick? What's your pick? I go Austin first, DC second. Yeah, and Austin gets them close to Whole Foods, which is mm-hmm. they've made a really big bet on. And, and it, Austin it's also is very similar to the Seattle culture. Yeah, just way way hotter. Yeah, the negative on Austin is the flights in and out are really bad. I don't. I don't. Even bet. They would build a direct for for you guys, but I bet today there isn't a Seattle direct. I, I think there is a Seattle is there? direct. Okay. Yeah. Most of the places you have to go in through DFW and then hop over to Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will point out, uh, it, getting to Austin is a bit of a challenge, but getting to Bentonville is a huge challenge, too, <laughs> and that doesn't seem to have dissuaded True. Uh, the big companies in Bentonville. So Yeah, a little different. Um, From a recruiting perspective, I don't think you would pick Bentonville if you, no, had the, I'm not, I wasn't if you promos- needed machine learning talent. Or- I wasn't promoting Bentonville, although that would be the most <laughs> There's awesome There's a reason dot com is not there. <laughs> if, if they went, surprise, Bentonville won. <laughs> that would be funny. We bought Tyson Chicken and we're taking over. Um, one thing you didn't mention in one of Jason's favorite thing is uh, voice commerce or conversational commerce. Mm, Are, yeah. Do you think it's too early for brands to be thinking about that or – or should they be thinking about you know, building an Alexa skill or, or how that impacts their world at all? I think the biggest thing that they can be thinking about is improving their relevance and search ranking so that when people ask voice what they should buy, that they're at the top of the list. But in terms of building skills specific to a brand, I think it's so early because nobody's downloading that skill. You know, they're, they're asking Alexa for music and um, some of those things. I... I talked to someone at the Alexa team who is working on um, kind of new technology, building new things. And what they said was really interesting, which was they want to make Alexa so important. Like when you if you walked into um, his house and you took his kid's cell phone away, the kid would like murder you before you left the door. And he wants to create experiences like that that are so important. So things like, you know, integrations into your car um, or, you know, like really important experiences in your day. And so I think brands need to be thinking about like, how can they do that? So to recap, he wants to elicit childhood murder, uh, murderous <laughs> tendencies more so than cell phones. All right, you that's have weird it. friends. Interesting. That's all we need is more addictive devices. We're already seeing a backlash exactly. on that. That's because that's one of the big problems in the world is there's not enough <laughs> devices to addict children. Yes. Uh, <laughs> another thing that 
came up in the conversation I wanted to get back to real quick is uh, you alluded to a change in the Prime Pantry program, and I was wondering if you could uh, uh, say a little bit more about that and and like what if any advice you're giving to brands to take advantage of the new subscription so think, base. Yeah, so this just came out, and I think it was um, now instead of so there was a fee per, per box that was shipped to you, so it was like. Um, five ninety nine or something. You build your yeah. box, and then it's five ninety nine to ship it to you. Um, and now I think they've come out with is it five dollars a month subscription program? Yeah. Um, and then is it? I think it's all you you just you just subscribe to it. Um, and it shows that it just shows that they're constantly playing with this business model to try to make it work. Um, and I think it's really interesting because Prime Pantry has been this place where when you can't make your assortment work on the core platform in a bigger size. You can typically, you know, sell your products in smaller size quantities on the Prime Pantry platform because it's more of a market basket uh, building exercise and there's, you know, better margins associated with it. So uh, a lot of brands actually that are not fit for the core platform can actually sell more of their assortment in Prime Pantry. Um, but Prime Pantry's always had this problem of adoption and trying to get more people to buy there. So I think that this is one of those uh, opportunities to drive more traffic to Prime Pantry um, and to make those economics work better. Uh, so I think that it's it's good thing for a lot of these companies who are putting those offline assortments online um, and trying to get more sales of that. So yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think it like ultimately prime pantry is more a solution for vendors than it is for consumers. Mm -hmm, Um, And so obviously to be a good solution, it has to get consumers to adopt it. And the $6 per drink charge was a big burden. Like you had to Mm -hmm. be super interested in building a box before you're willing to take that $6 out of your wallet. It's kind of like when you paid by the hour for internet, people didn't use the internet a lot. And when they switched to a, all you can use model, of course it became much more addictive. And so by switching to a, uh, uh, in all, you can get a model on Prime Pantry. Maybe they'll get more adoption, and it'll become an even better solution for the vendors. Mm-hmm. Cool. One one last question, and this is um, I'm a big study of Amazon's culture, and we talked about that on the last show. So I've I've found the leadership principles. I've I've kind of gotten a copy of that, and that's really good reading. I really enjoy that. Um, the one thing I still can't understand is. So Amazon has like 600,000 employees, and I deal with a lot of big companies, both at my new company and, and Channel Advisor. And they just go so slow. Like there's groups, like you'll hit an engineering group and they want to go fast and then legal gets involved or HR or IR or PR. How does Amazon go so fast and avoid that 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 problem where like the Amazon legal team comes in and grinds it to a halt? Like how- They don't have a legal team. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I almost wonder like, you know, so like, you know, one example is, um, you know, the Prime Now lady has been, she's spoken at Shop Talk and, mm-hmm. you know, where they opened one and then they got green light and they opened like 20 in like six months or something like that. You could never do that in any other company because there would be this team of lawyers that would come up with all the reasons that would be a terrible thing to do. How does Amazon avoid that? Um, you know, I'm is each team just like its own little independent business and they don't have to go through Amazon corporate legal or is like corporate legal is just so bought into the day one thing that they just let you do their, they've got the risk scale slid way over to more of a startup kind of place. 
Well, I think one thing is, so the legal question is, I mean, they definitely do have lawyers and they definitely have to approve everything. Um, but the other thing that Amazon does is they launch things at 70%. Like they never wait for it to be fully baked. Yeah. Um, and which is, you know, kind of problematic for a lot of us working on these tools <laughs> because they have literally bugs in them that, yeah. you know, are true bugs that don't work. But um, one of the things is their speed to market that they're able to accomplish through really escalated processes. And so they they do have a legal team that does have to approve things, but I think that they just do it way faster and don't have as many, you know, their risk profile maybe a little bit higher. I, I, don't, I don't know. But, I mean, I definitely, we have, there's a lot of legal, you know, approvals in place. But the other thing that I think that enables them to go so fast is that they never wait until things are completely... Baked. They don't have to have this long, you know, business case to to have it. They're able to just move very quickly. And it's actually the number one thing that my friends who've left Amazon and now are working at other companies, especially manufacturers, they complain about is the speed yeah. is so much slower. It's like they feel like they're turtles yeah. compared to the speed at which they're used to being able to. A lot of people are just given a lot of autonomy. Yeah. And um, Stephanie Landry, who's the, you know, she's in, amazing. Um, really has that bias for action is that big principle, mm -hmm. one of those principles you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I, be able to again, do. I come to across a lot of these companies that are bigger and they have this bias for action, but then like some part of the org just like yanks them. Usually it's legal. So, so that's just kind of, you know, it almost makes me think like the legal team must have some SLA with the rest of the company that they have to respond quickly. Like it's not that the legal says no, it's just like they don't respond and then it's like six months mm -hmm. to get an answer or something. I don't know. It's kind of I think they're I think they're pretty responsive. And I think the other thing too is that they try to lessen the dependencies and bottlenecks from other teams. Yeah. Which is why you kinda of got this whole path for one P and three P going different directions because they were built on totally different platforms and they didn't have to wait for each other. Although now that's coming back around. But yeah. that's why Yeah, that's a good example. That that happens. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh to me, it, it, it feels like part of this, I call Amazon a very object-oriented culture. Like all, the, all these individual little parts are tried to be maintained as autonomously as possible, and they just define the inputs and outputs to each little team, and they don't have these big staff meetings that legal's invited to, and everyone mm -hmm. just feels obligated to kind of pile in. Um, I, funny, I'm curious, uh, I have the opposite problem. I hire all these ex-Amazonians, and I'm always super excited because I feel like I'm going to uh, get all these employees that are uh, writing these well-thought-out six-page briefs on everything we want to do. Um, and apparently they throw away Microsoft Word as soon as they leave Amazon, and they send me a bunch of really crappy PowerPoint that they haven't used in the last five years of their career. So I'm super curious if you guys are mainly a PowerPoint culture now that you're not an Amazon. Sally, I think that because I'm so client, like I work with so many clients, that PowerPoint just happens to be the format that works really well. Um, and also... Actually, I work a lot with um, most of our uh, software development is in China. And so I work a lot with WeChat. Yeah. And so <laughs> that was the first thing I had to download and get used to was was WeChat. But um, so Word is, is maybe a little bit less in my culture these days. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used all of our allotted time in this special uh, Path to Purchase Summit edition of the Jason and Scott show. So if you have any questions about the stuff we discussed or any other questions for Melissa, feel free to jump on our Facebook page and we'll continue the dialogue there. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, this is a great reason to jump on iTunes and finally give us that five-star 
uh, rating that you've been withholding. It's driving Scott crazy, and I, I'm really starting to worry for his mental health. So um, until that, uh, we'll uh, see you at the next show. Yeah, yeah, definitely leave those ratings, and thanks for being on the show, Melissa. We appreciate it. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.